0: Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure.
1: To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes.
2: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
1: Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. Today's question Have you or a loved one ever received a home remedy? These might not be as common as they were once, but the idea is familiar to a lot of people listening today. You know, let's say you're under the weather, you have a cold, uh, maybe you have a sore throat or something like that, and someone says, Here, just uh, drink this water with honey and lemon, for instance, or just uh, use this poultice, which is a word I'd never get to use. Have you had a home remedy? If so, we'd love to hear about it. It has a lot to do with today's episode. My name's Ben. Hi, uh, my name's Noel here. Pound this glass of whiskey.
0: That'll, that'll definitely cure what ails you. What do you, what do you call it? Uncle, uncle buddy's leg medicine. Oh, Grandma's you're taking, medicine.
1: you're taking my phrase. Yeah. I told you that years well, ago. I'm, yeah.
0: I'm, well, I'm, I'm confirming. I don't, I just, I wanted you to remind uh, me. It was such a good sure.
2: one.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the name for medicinal whiskey, which is uh, pretty common in certain parts of Appalachia. Uh, you know, I'm not sure whether this is an actual Tennessee name or whether this is something my family made up, but I always loved the phrase Grandpa's leg medicine. That's the one. Weirdest name for whiskey. Who are you, my friend? Oh, I said it. I'm Noel still. Oh, great. Awesome. <laughs> so we've got <laughs> that established. And uh this guy rocking that cool fitted cap today is our super producer, Casey Pegram. What's the cap say?
0: I can't I'm have to blow you up here on my uh, on my Zoom screen. It's Adidas. Oh. Going back to our old episode. Oh yes, the yeah. classic sibling rivalry that divided a small gem in town. Yeah, that's a good that's an all-timer. If anybody hasn't heard that one, that's worth going back for. I couldn't agree more. Oh, thanks Casey. Uh, but today we're not talking about rivalries exactly. Uh, no, not at all. I'm I'm doing a bad job with the segue here. We're talking about exactly what Ben uh, said, which is the idea of home remedies. You know, some of them like the honey with lemon and a little bit of whiskey. Yeah, there's some probably some efficaciousness to that if you have a sore throat. Will it actually cure like a virus? Probably not. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and say definitely not. Uh, go out on a limb and say definitely not. That's, that's a foreshadowing thing for what's to come. Um, but it's sort of like the power of the mind, you know, mind over matter. If you believe in something, then it can at the very least make you feel better. Um, but we are specifically talking about remedies surrounding uh, not this pandemic that we're in currently but the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, which we've often seen uh, compared to what we're going through right now with COVID-19 as a parallel. And that holds true for this as well. There's a lot of kind of weird uh, remedies that are being kicked around for COVID. Uh, Some actually being uh, trumpeted by folks in power.
1: Yeah. You know, in times of uncertainty, People cling to things that feel like a sure bet, or really, we cling to things that feel like they're better than nothing. History is chock full of purported cures that later turned out to be not as helpful as they were originally uh, imagined to be. And in some cases, these quote unquote cures turn out to be actually harmful. But you're right, the sheer terror of the Spanish flu made people desperate enough to try almost anything. And as we go into this, it's necessary to establish these people were just as smart and just as flawed as people living today. So the people in 1918 and the people in 2020, no difference other than the amount of information they had at the time, just like the coronavirus pandemic. When the Spanish flu hit in 1918, when it became an official capital B, capital D big deal, a lot of newspapers from the time said that influenza wasn't dangerous. Hey, everybody, they said, as voices of reason, we're all familiar with the flu. It's been around, it's going to come back again. It's not the end of the world. We have advice for you other than staying calm just remember to take care of yourself. Keep your feet dry, stay warm, eat more onions, keep your windows and your bowels open. What does it mean to
0: keep your bowels? I don't even want to know. Uh, uh, There was another really good suggestion too. uh, That was the idea that phonograph players, uh, record players were, uh, you know, in the same way that we're seeing advertising campaigns pivot to being, uh, you know, COVID related that was happening then. And the uh, ad genius minds behind phonograph uh, campaigns uh, started to advertise them as machines guaranteed to drive away influenza because passing the time listening to records is a way to forget that you can't go outside. Um there's so many more of these, like things like uh, garlic, um, camphor balls wrapped in cheesecloth and like hanging around people's necks, like you would like trying to ward off vampires. What is camphor?
1: No, camphor is like isn't it like what's what's mothballs are made of? Uh, yeah, I think you're right. But I, I, what is camphor? Actual the actual substance?
0: Camphor um, is uh, a a terpene. Um, that is used in creams, and uh, it it actually is derived from the oil that comes out of uh, camphor trees. I think it's almost like a tea tree kind of situation. Um, It's supposed to relieve uh, itching and swelling and um, kind of inflammation, potentially. And it is also apparently something that is a moth repellent.
1: Ah, okay. And then you said uh, sugar cubes, right? But not any ordinary garden variety sugar cube it's like if you can't fight the disease well enough with a sugar cube alone combine it with its natural partner kerosene
0: really yeah not clear if you're supposed to just keep these in a dish or if you're really supposed to eat them i don't know uh what do you think
1: i mean clearly you put them in your armpits and at the back of your knee uh and and you walk through the town uh that way with an onion on your belt which was the style of the day
0: makes perfect sense to me. Um, Also, there were some other more uh, whiskey again, um, uh, the famous uh, the famous leg medicine um, and also something called Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup, which, as we know, um, a lot of those cough medicines that were intended for for folks of all ages contained lots of alcohol and potentially morphine. And this one also had a nice extra little punch with some ammonia uh, and it was pretty regularly given to infants
1: it was also pretty regularly criticized in public the ama the american medical association called mrs winslow's soothing syrup a quote baby killer back in 1911 it was still on the market for 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 almost two decades later uh, this is strange we're going to walk through some of these purported folk remedies right and some of these treatments by the way, were recommended by medical authorities of the day. One thing people loved that doctors did not co-sign was the idea that the Spanish flu could be deterred by the color red, just the presence of the color red. All throughout Chicago, families would shut their windows and doors and they would boil red pepper in an attempt to stave off the virus.
0: So this this is a notion that by boiling red pepper you are harnessing the the essence of the color red. Sorry for my uh, incredibly pretentious pronunciation there, but
1: is that sort of what we're getting at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're weaponizing red. <laughs> it's, it reminds me of a, a scene in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. One of the I think one of the more recent episodes where Frank Reynolds, the character played by Danny DeVito, starts demanding that he only eats blue. Just blue-colored food because he feels like it's classy and he feels like it's good for you. Uh, I'm not saying that the entirety of Chicago was made up of Danny DeVito clones in 1918. That would just be genetically impossible. But you're right. People did believe that things associated with the color red would somehow prevent the encroachment of the virus because the flu apparently just didn't like that color.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, And in Louisiana, there was even a hospital superintendent, you know, supposed to be relatively in the know about the latest trends in in medical treatments. Um, He recommended uh, weaving a quilt out of wormwood um, and sewing between it layers of flannel that were dipped in hot vinegar. I don't understand. I guess the flannel was red, Uh, but here's here's the craziest one of all. Um, There was actually a uh, recommendation in a book about the pandemic that uh, preserved a letter to the public health service suggesting that uh, servicemen, I'm guessing this is like frontline medical workers, uh, you know, on on the ground, wear a red ribbon on their chest because quote the flu is the devil. And devil don't work with red. Ah, right. That seems counterintuitive to me, though, Ben,
1: doesn't I thought the devil would love red? Well, you know, in some depictions of hell, you know, the very pit of the abyss is a frozen cold place. Uh, So maybe there would not be fire. I think a lot of people have the association of red with the Christian devil because of the concept of flames. But, you know, devil don't work with red. I think that's a great catchphrase. Uh, and I am not. Uh, I am not opposed to stealing that from the letter quoted in that book you mentioned. The Spanish influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1919: New perspectives. The devil don't work with red, Casey Pegram. I feel like that's something you're always telling us. That and Prada. Yeah, those are like the two things I associate with the devil. <laughs> so, what about another cure? I shouldn't say cure. We have so many purported remedies. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I can I can get behind this one pretty easily sliced onions. If one person in a house came down with the Spanish influenza, everybody knew, you know, it was communicable. So your odds of getting it yourself greatly increased. Some families would try to get in front of this. If they had someone in their house who was infected, they would slice onions and place them strategically around the home. Yeah,
0: it was this idea that onions absorbed impurities in the air. Uh, And this is actually a pretty... Uh, longstanding kind of folk remedy in general. It wasn't specific just to the Spanish flu. Um, It's this notion that onions can absorb bacteria and just nasty things in the air. Uh, Of course, that's not true. Um, I will say that onions are pretty good at absorbing like flavors and other smells. So if you had like a, like a cut onion and you left that in the fridge, it would do a pretty good job of like absorbing some of those other, um, you know, fridge smells. Uh, so it's probably a good idea to
1: keep your, keep your
0: onions wrapped up, but that could just be, uh, could just be my imagination based on this old, uh, this old folk remedy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, while we're on the subject of smell, I do have one weird tip about garlic smells that I learned way too late. Garlic has also been used in a similar way to onions with the idea that the smell somehow will dissuade a disease or a vampire or so on. I did not know this, but you know how when you cut garlic, your hands may smell of garlic afterwards. If you rub your hands on stainless steel, it will remove the smell of garlic. Isn't that crazy? Oh, wow.
0: That is crazy. I didn't know that. Another interesting thing uh, to that to that end about onions is you know how when you cut an onion it makes you cry. I mean that's definitely a thing that happens. And I wonder if that led some people to believe that onions have some sort of magical properties. It is true that uh, onions um, actually have antibacterial properties, which makes them less prone to uh, bacterial contamination. Um, in fact, so here's here's the thing: there's a chemical reaction that happens when an onion is cut, it actually uh, produces something called propensulfenic acid, which then yields uh, sulfuric acid once it decomposes. And that sulfuric acid is actually what makes you cry by uh, irritating your eyes. Um, Sulfuric acid also is something that will prevent the growth of bacteria. But absorb it, that's a stretch.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But you can see where the logic is coming from here. When when you hear about the idea of slicing onions, again, people weren't foolish. They were working with the information they had at the time. There was also a strange correlation here between toxic gases And the flu or a perceived correlation, I should say, during the pandemic, a group of villagers in England stumbled upon what they saw as a strange and informative relationship. They noticed that workers who were exposed to noxious gas appeared to catch influenza at a lower rate. And because of this, many concerned parents who did not want their children to die of the Spanish flu, took them to industrial areas, to factories, to plants, and exposed them to those gases instead of taking them to the doctor. Here, little Johnny suck
0: on this uh, smokestack for a while uh, that'll that'll cure what ails you yikes it, it kind of reminds me of Ben you you recall uh, when covid 19 first kicked in there was concern that cigarettes tobacco smokers would be more prone to getting the disease because it's an upper respiratory thing and and this notion that you know it we it would weaken your immune system or weaken your upper respiratory system but then a study out of France you might recall as well uh, uh, showed that smokers were being infected much less frequently uh, we don't know why don't know what that correlation was but it, yeah there it is so I wonder if this is a similar situation where because you're sucking on toxic fumes so much maybe your body is just good at like rejecting things or you know you've basically bulked up your immune system because it works so hard all the time I don't know this is I'm obviously not a lung doctor here but uh, what do you guys think about
1: that I would say the methodology is up for examination Yes, just to be diplomatic about it. I mean, people who are chronic tobacco smokers may be less likely to go to a doctor or may already have symptoms of COVID that can just be attributed to the labor that the lungs experience on a day-to-day basis with smoking. But I also, I also followed that as well. Uh, it was an interesting report, and we're still seeing, again, More and more cures being proposed and then withdrawn from the public sphere. There was one medical expert, a sanitary officer by trade, who said, I'm going to look into this inhaling fumes thing. I don't know if kids should go straight to the nitric acid playground before they visit the doctor. By playground, I mean factory. Anyway, this guy found that the general rate of influenza in this area in England, was about 40%, which is huge. And then he looked specifically at a local factory, a 10 factory. And in this factory, workers were exposed to nitric acid on a regular basis. The rate of influenza in that factory appeared to be just 11%. And then he somehow found that if these workers also inhaled gunpowder, their rate of influenza was only 5%. This comes from Dr. Jeremy Brown in his book named Influenza. Was that a normal situation? Look, I have never worked at a tin factory. I've never made tin, but are, are people getting exposed to nitric acid and then also inhaling gunpowder like on their lunch break? What, what gives? How is that a normal thing?
0: uh it certainly seems pretty specific if you ask me um a side effect of working you know around lots of gunpowder like in like say an arms manufacturing you know facility or something like that uh but who knows the the uh, the
1: jury's still out on that one
2: Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
1: This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile.
0: You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man,
1: how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile
0: and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month.
1: See Mint Mobile for details. Shall we move on to the next one, Ben? Oh, yes, let's. This will be familiar to anyone who's read up on malaria. That's right. And it also is going to
0: have a little bit of resonance with uh, uh, one of today's somewhat spurious uh, remedies uh, that the jury is definitely still out on being kicked around. And when I say today, I mean modern day. Um, This one is quinine, which is an anti-parasite that was used very uh, effectively in treating malaria. It's also something, if I'm not mistaken, that is what gives tonic
1: water. It's a kind of weird, bitter taste. Yeah, I'm glad we brought this up. Uh, Gin and tonic, the cocktail everybody knows and some people love, has this fantastic origin story. It is a cocktail that came about because of malaria. Today, malaria kills around 400,000 individuals per year. But in the 1700s, this Scottish doctor named George Cleghorn discovered that quinine can be used to treat malaria, and they put it in tonic water. And this led to tonic water being given out to British soldiers when they were stationed in India during the age of the British Empire. But of course, tonic water is pretty bitter by itself, right? Uh, That's why you don't see a lot of people ordering straight up tonic. So back in the 1800s, soldiers started adding gin, and then they added lemon, and then they added lime to their tonic water, all to hide the bitter flavor of this malaria medication. And they accidentally invented the gin and tonic. Nowadays, by the way, uh, gin and tonic is not going to be your go-to cure for malaria because the quinine content is, is pretty low nowadays.
0: Isn't that interesting that it's basically kind of a nostalgic remnant of something that once was like actually used for a real reason and and, and was meant to not taste particularly great. And now it's something that people kind of developed a taste for Um, because it's weird. It's when you mix if you drink tonic water on its own, it does taste kind of gross. But if you mix gin with it and a little bit of squeeze of lime. You don't really taste that bitterness. It almost tastes like Sprite or something, you know what I mean? Like it's it really does mask it, but it's sort of a necessary component to the cocktail, isn't
1: it? I mean, look, I'm going to be honest. I'm probably never going to be the biggest fan of Mother's Ruin, which was a nickname for gin. I don't know if you guys ever Yikes. heard that. <laughs> yeah. No, I've <I'm> not. <laughs> it's it's a it's maybe a story for another day, but but you're right. They were doing a lot of stuff to cut that bitter taste and quickly before we move on i sort of set this up um
0: a drug that's being you know kicked around right now with with a lot of uh, um consternation and kind of controversy is something called hydroxychloroquine um which is also a drug that's used to treat that was effectively used to treat malaria um it's something that. Certain individuals are are saying could potentially treat uh, the coronavirus, but clinical trials have proven so far that that's not the case. But I just think it's really interesting that the the parallel there between the the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, um, this notion of a previously effective drug being used to treat something uh, new um, is very much still a thing right now because quinine was – shown it it would reduce the fever that caused by malaria but that was because it actually treated malaria and attacked the parasite it being an anti-parasite and it wasn't it wasn't useful at all against viruses
1: right two different uh, two different diseases you know what i mean Uh, all not all diseases come from the same place now i'm sure we're all familiar with the old tried and true saying when life gives you a pandemic, make lemonade or something like that. Lemons and citrus fruit in general, like lime, played a big role in uh, combating disease. We have to note, of course, that citrus fruits like oranges, lemon, and lime were effective in combating scurvy. That was a common affliction experienced by sailors out on the open ocean. But eventually, lemons Had a role to play in the 1918 pandemic, and it was actually very good for the lemon market. You see, before the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, people in the US didn't really mess with lemons. You know, like nowadays, you might be listening to this with some lemons in your house. You might be planning to pick up some lemons while you're listening to this podcast. But back in the day, pre 1918, the average U.S. resident maybe bought 12 lemons a year. They ju- people just didn't care for the sour taste. And they didn't, you, you know, like it wasn't a normal part of the diet.
0: Yes, it's true. And by the way, uh, I learned recently from America's Test Kitchen that a lot of people keep their lemons out in bowls on the table. Well, that's a surefire way to end up with bad lemons. Refrigerate those lemons and they'll last a lot longer. Mm -hmm. Um, But back to the the, uh, task at hand. Um, It's true. It was uh, difficult at the time to sell lemons. Uh, There was also in 1913, in advance of the pandemic, there was a massive freeze that was uh, very uh, detrimental to the lemon crops. Um, And then in 1917, uh, there was a heat wave that absolutely, you know, fried the lemon crops on the trees. But, you know, after all of that consternation in the lemon industry, that shakeup, they finally had a good harvest. uh, And it was actually things were going crazy with the lemon yield had doubled. But consumer demand had absolutely shrunk. Um, Consumers were uh, only using about one uh, lemon when they might have used two. And that Mm -hmm. was uh, according to Don Francisco of the California Fruit Growers Association back in 1918, April.
1: I love this guy. I love Don Francisco. And I'm also a big fan of Albert Lasker. Anyone who's familiar with the concept of advertising as depicted in Mad Men? or in the book Propaganda by Edward Bernays, if you're familiar with those characters, you're going to love this Albert Lasker guy. Don Francisco had started working with the California Fruit Growers Exchange that you had, you had just mentioned, Noel, uh, in 1914 as a fruit examiner, which sounds like a cool job. I like looking at produce. I, I feel like that would be a pretty rewarding career. Francisco was... Not yet 30. He was 27 years old and he was already, quote, a legend in the citrus industry because, along with Lasker, this guy had no fooling, invented orange juice or the modern concept of it. He popularized orange juice in the US. And he and Lasker didn't do it out of um, concern for people's health or out of some altruistic motivation. They started marketing orange juice because they wanted to get more people eating oranges they just wanted to sell more oranges and they they said you know squeezing oranges by hand oh, that's just too much work for anybody So, so let's, let's make it easier, right? Picture all those beginning clips of every TV infomercial ever, where somebody is saying, there's gotta be a better way.
0: Fumbling with orange juices dripping off the hands. Like, ah, if only, Mm -hmm. um, oh, this is some Edward Bernays level, uh, marketing right here my friend is it not that's why i mentioned him yeah oh my god you are absolutely correct in, in uh, connecting this with edward bernays in the uh level of marketing genius on display here
1: yeah so just a real quick tangent here noel when we say don francisco and lasker sort of quote-unquote invented orange juice what what did they actually do because people have been taking the juice from oranges for you know thousands of years right
0: That's right. Um, So this is when you start seeing the introduction of the electric juicer, uh, the juice press, which obviously is huge now. Everyone's got to have one. Juicing is all the rage. Uh, But the groundwork for that was set way back uh, in in the early 1900s here. Um, So he was instrumental in helping actually design this thing. Um, It was something that you would see at soda fountains and diners and also, um, you know, for those lucky enough to be able to afford it mornings at home around the breakfast table and all of this was to promote the sun-kissed company advertisers uh from the firm lord and thomas added the campaign line drink an orange and it was already it it literally was such a popular campaign such a success that it started to be hot on the tails of coca-cola as the most popular drink in the country
1: yes so naturally don francisco is the guy you go to if you need to move some lemons. He has proven success with oranges. And Francisco was a noted optimist, right? But even he was cautious about the idea of selling lemons. He specifically said, with lemons, an appeal to the appetite is difficult. He also thought they were ugly. Literally, he thought it was just from an advertising standpoint a tall order, a tall glass of orange juice to try and make lemons look visually appealing. So instead of saying, you know, instead of pretending that people like the taste of lemons, they went with the tagline "Lemons for usefulness." <laughs> ah, so practical,
2: love
0: it.
1: <laughs> I don't know. You know, it makes me wonder. Uh, longtime listeners, you you'll remember a while back. uh, I alluded to getting a jar of Vegemite for the first time, and I was wondering how people advertise that. How do you market yeast extract? And I guess you can sell anything if you're Don Francisco because he started off small. He said, okay, ask for a slice of lemon with your tea if you want to be classy. Get a wedge with your vegetables. And he said, lemons are also healthy. Or he said, let's... Let's give people the idea that lemons are healthy, but let's never specifically say that they should be considered medicinal. Let's just, you know, associate them with healthy things like tea and vegetables. And he was pitching these ideas for selling lemons just months before the rise of the Spanish flu. Ah, perfect
0: timing and Ben we know this from like doing ads and stuff and not mentioning anything specifically but a lot of times there'll be like you know lines in the ad copy that say do not make any claims about the healthfulness of this product or whatever or don't say that it will like fix what whatever problem uh, it might be intimating that it could help you with but you know making medical claims is a big deal in advertising and I'm sure the rules were a little more lax back then but um, pretty smart that, that he saw that that was probably the the safest way to keep from getting in trouble with the FDA, which, by the way, was established in 1906. So definitely a thing. Um, But yeah, it's true. And, you know, I think of lemons as adding a little bit of zest, a little bit of refreshment. But this idea that they could be healthful really uh, took off like wildfire when the Spanish flu kicked in um, because you couldn't keep lemons on the shelves.
1: Yeah, they went from uh, one of the least popular citrus products to the toilet paper or the disinfectant wipes or the hand sanitizer of the day. People just couldn't find lemons in stores. They knew that thousands of people were dying from the Spanish flu. Like 1,000 people had died of the flu in Boston alone in September of 1918. So if you could find lemons, their price would be sky high. People were hoarding lemons the way that people were hoarding toilet paper in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic. And here's the thing, no one was exactly sure why. There was a rumor, kind of an ad campaign gone rogue, that said lemons could be a remedy for the flu as well as, get this, a prophylactic. Eventually, At least in New York, the Federal Food Board had to step in to stop the price gouging like people were becoming lemon tycoons
0: yeah 100% and then um you know th- there were some things that had already been popular like warm lemonade um while it certainly wasn't you know encouraged by medical professionals as a cure but it certainly was like more of like a remedy like have some chamomile tea drink some hot tea with lemon you know that'll make your throat feel better it's sort of like more of a mind over matter thing and at this point when they don't have a cure um, they're going to do whatever they can to make people feel better at the very least they're staying hydrated. Uh, but then things kind of took a weird turn. And I love this, this headline from the LA Herald, uh, from October 23rd of 1918 lemon sucking now hailed by science as influenza
1: cure. And it's good for complexions too. declare high
0: medical authorities.
1: Do you fear the flu? Suck lemons. Have you the flu? Suck lemons. This is the latest of free advice from the wisest heads regarding the prevailing epidemic in the United States. If this suggestion had come from the owner of a large lemon grove, it might have been taken with a proverbial grain of salt. But since it came from high medical authorities not interested in lemon growing, the Chamber of Commerce has accepted the responsibility of passing on the good news.
0: Huzzah! And it even wraps up with this. If the lemon runs true to reputation, the problem of eradicating the epidemic in Southern California should not be difficult as all the lemons grown in the United States commercially are produced in California. Uh, the crop will be approximately 8,000 cars this year, uh, which is about 75% of the normal consumption of the United
1: States and Canada cars, Ben. Yeah. Yeah. Cars would be a cargo term at that point, I imagine. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, Yeah, gotcha, like sh- containers of containers. And they were bragging. If you look at the context, this paper is bragging a bit. They're saying, essentially, we have all the toilet paper, right? Uh, because the, the, this is a thing people are hoarding. They're not alone. In October of 1918, a paper called The Deming Graphic uh, published a similar report with the lovely title, Hand the Flu a Lemon. Spanish influenza doesn't like lemons. Lemons are said to be flu foes. I love the I love flu foes. Let's mm-hmm. just I'm gonna start saying that.
0: Um, yeah, and uh, you know it, it even spread to Europe, right? Uh, Europeans who were uh, affected by the flu started getting into lemon treatments as well. Like that spread as far as Italy. Uh, the government in Rome um, was actually pushing for this as being like a really good treatment. And this is one of these things too, where it's like if you're desperate, you don't have a cure. I can understand how this is something that governments would get behind i mean is it dangerous no is it false hope perhaps sure is it keeping people from totally losing their minds and also you know making them uh hydrated
1: then i think that's probably okay but certainly was good for the lemon industry
2: Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
1: Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. What's interesting too about this particular report from the Deming Graphic is that they include a postscript where they say, okay, if you can't get lemons, you can also use onions. They note that a lot of people who had recovered from the Spanish flu credited the consumption of onions in multiple forms with their recovery and success. It, it, it's interesting because they're kind of they're saying lemons are the best, but we know not everyone can get them. So an onion is is also acceptable. But to your point, Noel, uh neither of these were proven to actually combat the flu.
0: Yeah, it's true. I think I don't think any of the of the remedies that we've discussed today were actually effective in any way, shape, or form other than that kind of placebo effect, which we know can absolutely
1: be powerful. Uh, So where does that leave us, Ben? Well, if you are like many people listening today, this leaves you with some lemons in a bowl on your counter or in your fridge. To your earlier point, Noel, the pandemic and specifically the advertising that became propaganda about the lemon propelled it. From being a luxury good, something that you might on average have a a baker's dozen of per year, to a staple in the pantry, something that was considered for a while as uh, basic as flour or sugar or oil. You know what I mean? Olive oil or vegetable oil. I mean, not kerosene. That's just for sugar cubes. For sure.
0: And Ben, I know you're a chef as well. Um, I love using lemon zest in like in pasta dishes or in anything to kind of brighten up the flavor, a nice squeeze of lemon on some rice maybe, or some vegetables. I mean, it really is a great thing to have around um, for cooking or baking.
1: Agreed. I made some uh, preserved lemons one time. Have you guys ever tried that?
0: Whoa. Is that where you like with, how do you, what, what, what is the uh, suspension, I guess, or how do you, how do you do this? I'm fascinated.
1: Well, I ended up covering them with salt. I can't remember the specifics of the recipe right now, but I, I, I got obsessed. I, I don't know if this has ever happened to anybody else. Uh, please let me know on social media, but have you guys ever been in the situation where you get a massive amount of some sort of specific produce or something? I I ended up with like, eight pounds of lemons one time. I had no idea what to do with them. So I preserved them.
0: It's a great idea. I found a recipe right here uh, where you can use it in all kinds of sauces or, or braising things or, uh, yeah, this is awesome. It's basically just salt and lemon juice and you just put them in a Mason jar and and, and then, you got your uh, preserved lemons that you can use for a long time. Very cool. I'm going to give this a try myself.
1: Oh yeah. It's great. It also, it's a nice visual for your kitchen or your cooking area. Uh, you know, I, I don't know about you, but when I see stuff in glass jars in people's kitchens, I think that person has their life together. That's probably really shallow of me, but, I always, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe advertising got to me. But regardless of my opinion of glass jars in kitchens, the pandemic was actually pretty good for California's lemon farmers. Yes, uh,
0: they uh, they took a pandemic and made it into pandemonade. I was. I've been saving that one for the for the whole episode, but uh, I will just leave that right there.
1: And I think we can probably leave you right here, fair listeners. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, we've discovered that the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic led to the rise of the lemon, but we should also, I think, mention Don Francisco, the irrepressible optimist, the advertising visionary who ushered the lemon into mainstream American homes. He envisioned the lemon going even further. He was talking about merchandising. He said, look, let's not stop with the flu. Let's talk about lemon pie. Let's talk about lemon shampoo. Let's let's use lemons as a fish garnish. Let's use lemons to scour pots and pans. Like At this point, he's basically the OxyClean guy. What was that guy's name? You know what I'm talking about? Was that uh, Ron Ronco or no,
0: Ron? I don't know. He, he's the set it and forget it rotisserie chicken guy. But uh, who is the Billy R-C-P Mays? Guy? That's it. Billy Mays. That's the one. R.I.P. R.I.P. At least he didn't live to see his beloved OxyClean uh, accidentally become a bizarro home remedy for COVID-19.
1: Way to bring it back around. Yeah, because history may not repeat, but it sure does seem to rhyme at times. You know, this episode is making me increasingly pro-lemon. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not the kind of person who immediately thinks of lemons when they're hungry or wanting a snack. That's not unusual, right? Most people are not walking by somewhere getting a little famished and thinking, hmm, I sure could use a fresh lemon, right?
0: You know that lyric in uh, there's uh, the first song off of the Radiohead album Kid A? It's called uh, Everything in Its Right Place. There's a lyric in that. that For the longest time, I couldn't understand because he's Tom York. But he goes, yesterday I woke up sucking a lemon. Yesterday I woke up sucking a lemon. Yesterday I woke up sucking a lemon. I think that's a reference to the 1918 flu pandemic. That's my theory i can neither confirm nor deny that but he is saying he woke up yesterday sucking a lemon
1: i think you're right i mean it's pretty clear uh this is something that casey told me off air it's pretty clear that most of radiohead's discography is inspired by the 1918 spanish flu epidemic casey can you confirm that
2: yeah a few people realize this
0: but uh you're you're spot on Ben.
1: (laughs) casey on the case
0: (laughs) I just wanted to add that uh, the lyrics on that album, I don't think it's the case with every song because some songs predate the uh, the Kid A sessions, but the ones that were kind of written in that period, Tom York just had like fragments of lyrics in a hat, and sometimes he would just draw them out of the hat, and that would kind of be his process for writing the song. So I always wonder if Yesterday I Woke Up Sucking a Lemon was one of those strips of paper that he just kind of drew out and paired it with that particular... uh, Song. I never knew that, and that is a uh, a technique made famous by David Bowie and Brian Eno, uh, the, the, the the cut up method, and also William S. Burroughs for a lot of his uh, weirder books. He just threw threw pieces of paper up in the air and assembled them in some semblance of uh, of, of narrative.
1: His, his wait, 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 as opposed to his normal books. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> right. as opposed to like modestly clothed lunch. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh, Ben, you, you, had, you had me immodestly
0: clothed. Um, well, I think this has been fun and educational, and it's interesting to see all these uh, parallels between, uh, you know, the 1918 epidemic and, and the one we're going through right now. I hope everyone's staying home, staying safe, and uh, and being well. Um, huge thanks to super producer Casey Pegram, as always, Alex Williams, who composed our theme, Christopher Hasiotis.
1: Here in spirit, and big thanks, of course, as always, to Gabe Luzier. A personal, heartfelt thank you uh, to our own uh, Big Lemon, Jonathan Strickland, aka the Quister. Yeah, he's sort of he's
0: he's he's like a human uh, lemon squeeze in like an open cut.
1: That is how he describes himself on social media, and of course, big. Big thanks to the lemon itself, Uh, whether preserved, whether as a wedge with your green vegetables or uh, as a, I don't know. Noel, Casey, how do you guys like to cook with lemons?
0: Really just a nice little squeeze here and there, a little bit of a zest of the skin. Um, That's what really makes the flavor last. The lemon juice flavor will kind of cook out if you do it too early in the
1: process. But that zest is a lot more potent. I think I've got to go get a glass jar. We'll see you next time, folks.
0: For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now?
1: Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big
0: happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller
1: ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways, of rolling vineyards and castled hills, into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything.